So a little while back, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts called Switched On Pop. In this particular episode, the two hosts, Charlie Harding and Nate Sloan, discussed the musical evolution of the British boy band One Direction. They picked apart a few 1D songs that had unique features like strange rhythmic syncopations, key changes in surprising places, and the use of slant rhymes in the lyrics. But towards the end of the episode, the conversation went in one direction I was not expecting. Do you sometimes wish that Harry Styles never grew up, that his voice just would stay pure and angelic and youthful for his whole life? (laughs) Oh, no. There's a way. (laughs) These choirs at the Sistine Chapel and including many of the opera stars of of later centuries were, in fact, castrati. Don't tell me. Yes. It isn't so. It was. It was very prevalent during this time. And did they hold the same level of stardom? They were superstars. Castrati were male singers who were castrated before they hit puberty so their voices wouldn't change. The lack of testosterone made it so the boy's larynx would never develop and their vocal cords would remain like a young boy's, short and supple, allowing a castrato to sing very high pitches and with great agility. Now, the hosts of Switched On Pop were not suggesting that Harry Styles be castrated, They were comparing the fame and adoration that One Direction receives to that of famous castrati. At first, I thought it was a little crazy to compare Harry Styles to a castrato. But when I overcame my visceral cringing and relaxed enough to uncross my legs, it became clear that there was a lot more to this story than simply the physiological. And the comparison is really not that crazy at all. Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. We are a proud member of the Goat Rodeo Network. Even for the European society that existed 500 years ago, performing this surgical procedure on boys seems like an incredibly drastic measure to preserve their high-pitched voices. Unfortunately, there is no documentation that discusses how or why this practice began, so we can't really say for certain that the first castrati were castrated specifically for singing. So we don't really know whether there were boys who were castrated for medical reasons and then it was thought that singing would be a good career. There's been some speculation that some of the early ones may have come through that route, but most likely they were castrated for singing. That's Martha Feldman, author of the book The Castrato, Reflections on Natures and Kinds. Believe it or not, the medical conditions castration was thought to cure were hernias and gout. Old-school European medicine is very, um, unique. But whether the procedure was first done for medical reasons or specifically to maintain a boy's high voice, the Roman Catholic Church adopted a law that created a demand for castrati, and lots of them. Well, women weren't allowed to sing in church. And in the Papal States, women weren't allowed to sing on stage. By not allowing women to sing in choirs, the Catholic Church kind of shot themselves in the foot. They need someone to sing the high-pitched parts, and generally, men can't sing that high unless they're using falsetto. Women can sing those high parts easily, but instead of simply allowing women to sing in the choirs, the Church chose the more complicated solution of castrating young boys and using them to sing the high parts. This became especially true in 1589 when Pope Sixtus V issued a papal bull removing all the actual boys and male falsetto singers in the choir of St. Peter's and replaced them with castrati. 
Oddly enough, this papal bull was a legal paradox. In order to follow this law, another had to be broken because it was illegal to castrate boys for musical reasons. There were, however, other non-musical justifications that could be used to castrate legally. So, if someone wanted a boy to be a castrato, they had to reverse engineer the rationale. They didn't really reverse engineer them. They just reverse narrativized them. <laughs> they gave it, you know, they sort of flipped the narrative and said that the boys had been castrated for medical reasons or because they'd had some injury or fall from a horse, a, a fall from a tree. So if it was framed at all, it was framed as a therapy. Officially, you could only castrate for medical reasons. It seems that someone who wanted to make a castrato found it easy to create enough of a veneer of legality to justify the surgery. Often the people who advocated for the surgery held positions of distinction and were members of the clergy, music teachers, or aristocrats who spotted a talented young boy and thought he would be a great candidate for the surgery. Just before the boy hit puberty, they would approach the boy's family and ask about turning him into a castrato. Believe it or not, a lot of families ended up saying yes. Families were looking to create an opportunity for their children. So marriage was one way to create an opportunity. The military was another. You know, there were these various options. The priesthood was another. And becoming a castrato was another. It was uncommon for the eldest son of a family to receive the surgery. You see, parents didn't have to worry about the finances of their oldest son because he was going to marry and inherit the land. This caused a problem for the other sons because there was no land left over for them. So the parents had to help find other ways the younger sons could support themselves. A career in the military or priesthood could solve that problem. But if the boy showed a musical gift at an early age, then a singing career as a castrato could be the best option. But for some families, the financial situation was even more dire. In the 17th century, there was terrible famine and economic despair and... There were families that really had no means of subsistence, and castration of one boy could mean one job that could feed a whole family. So sometimes, transforming a son into a castrato could save a family from starving. But in other instances, the parents' motives were a bit more selfish. But there are families where multiple sons get castrated, and even one where virtually all the sons were castrated. It was actually an ambitious family. And, you know, they did do very well for themselves as a result. The reasons for transforming a son into a castrato range from basic survival to using their son as a stepping stone to get to the next rung of the social ladder. Shockingly, the methods of administering the surgery were as diverse as the reasons for authorizing it. Sometimes the families would hire that time period's equivalent of a trained surgeon, and other times the families employed the same methods used to castrate bulls. Often the boy was so doped up on opium that he didn't feel much pain and couldn't remember the surgery. This opium-induced memory loss created an opening for parents to feed a lie to the boy about why his body isn't whole. They might tell the boy a story about being gouged by a hog or some other accident that caused a deformity, removing the blame from themselves. Other times, though, the boy was fully aware of what transpired. One castrato, named Gisto Tenducci, even carried his preserved testes with him in a specially made red velvet purse. 
Castrati's experiences with the operation were varied, but their lives after were not so much. Now their voices wouldn't descend, but simply having a high voice did not mean you were a castrato. Like any musical discipline, learning to sing as a virtuosic castrato required a lot of time and practice. They needed a considerable amount of training. Many of them were already having a good deal of training because they were in choirs most of the time. Most of the time there was some evidence that they were already good singers and could improve to become really substantially better singers. But the training regimens became much more rigorous after they were castrated. Oftentimes more rigorous from what we know than for other kinds of singers, tenors, basses, women. The regimen of one singing school in Rome consisted of one hour of singing difficult and awkward pieces, one hour practicing trills, one hour practicing ornamented passaggi, one hour of singing exercises in their teacher's presence and in front of a mirror so as to avoid unnecessary movement of the body or facial grimaces, and one hour of literary study. This, however, was only half a castrato's daily routine. Everything I just listed occurred before lunch. The teachers in the schools that trained castrati were not all over Europe, as you might expect. They existed in one geographic region because that was the only place in Europe where the surgery was being administered. Not coincidentally, this region was very close to the Vatican. You know, originally, and in fact always, they were castrated in Italy. They very quickly started to spread to other countries in terms of where they worked. And then they quickly spread to all countries in Europe. Even France, which did not include castrati in their operas, had castrati at the royal chapel at Versailles. So the one great exception to the European rule did actually have some castrati, and there were many castrati everywhere else in Europe. After Italy had created castrati and put them through rigorous training, all the other European countries who didn't want to have the surgery done on their own soil were more than happy to employ castrati and treat them very, very well. The most famous castrati had an almost rock star-like status. They toured all over Europe, played in the finest venues, and were paid handsomely to do so. Their fame got their names on invite lists to the salons of powerful aristocrats, and they frequently socialized with kings and queens. The sacrifice Castrati were forced to make as boys literally opened doors for them in adulthood that never would have been opened otherwise. The majority of Castrati never achieved this rock star-esque fame and instead held positions singing in the choirs of prominent churches. Parishioners often attended church just to hear the Castrati sing. In fact, in 1748, when Pope Benedict XIV pushed to ban Castrati from churches, he abandoned his cause out of fear that banning Castrati would cause church attendance to plummet. For the castrati that were fortunate enough to become superstars, there were two independent European cultural trends that supported their rise to fame. The first was the invention of opera, which began at roughly the same time the Pope placed castrati in the choir of St. Peter. As attending operas became all the rage amongst European polite society, castrati were there riding the wave as the new art form's natural, or unnatural, leaders. 
The two made the perfect pair, especially during the Baroque period, which relished a type of ornamented singing that the castrati's small, supple vocal cords were uniquely capable of performing. I don't want to generalize it too much. There was the capacity to have an extraordinary amount of range and agility. And then we have a few truly exceptional cases, which are exceptional even within that cast of castrati that we're talking about, and seem to have had a kind of great beauty of timbre, tone quality that we don't have access to now. But you can gain some idea from reading anecdotes, as well as looking at scores and then hearing reconstructions of their singing from some modern singers. There are no recordings of a castrato performing this type of agility singing, but there are some examples that can give you the sense of what this type of singing is all about. The closest I would have would be Maria Callas singing passages from Rossini's Barber of Seville. I have some passages of her singing coloratura from Una Voce Poco Fa. Now that was not written for a castrato, it was written for a woman. This is sort of the era of uh, the kind of singing castrati did becoming mainstream among bel canto composers. And so Maria Callas is singing that kind of music that is learned from the castrati. And in fact, her, the, the training of her teacher can be traced back to a castrato who was teaching in the early 19th century. Hearing a castrato perform a piece like that live would be pretty impressive. And people of that time period heaped on some heavy praise. In 18th century Italy, when a castrato performed a particularly moving aria, the audience would stand in applause and cry out, Viva il coltellino, which translates to Long Live the Little Knife. Besides opera, the other European cultural trend that supported a castrato's rise to superstardom was the massive increase in the amount of print media. There was definitely a celebrity culture that developed, and it was connected with the development of cosmopolitan cities, which had a whole apparatus for promoting castrati through media. Certain castrati who traveled went to London, for example, which was a very cosmopolitan, big city with a very vigorous set of media, print, portraits, magazines. There are many ways to promote a castrato's image and just have that image circulate. And we know what happens when images are circulated through the media. You know, it tends to create these these kind of fan cultures. And so that's what happened with a lot of these castrati. In London, during the 90-year period between 1690 and 1780, the number of newspapers printed each year rose from under 1 million to over 14 million. The newspaper business was booming, and, similar to today, one of the topics the newspapers covered was music. Castrati were constantly being written about. And, just like with modern groups like One Direction, after seeing a castrato in the press over and over, fans began to develop amorous feelings for them. First of all, sexuality in the early modern period operated across a range of desires, much as today. A castrato was no 
more or less likely to be straight or gay than a person would be nowadays. By the same token, some men were attracted to castrati, many were not, some women were. It seems as if an unusual number of women were attracted to castrati. And did castrati return the sentiment? Often, it's assumed that a castrato's missing glands would cause him to be uninterested in sexual relationships. But that's not the case. The removal of the primary testosterone-producing organ could cause some strange things to happen to a castrato's body. For example, the diminished hormone could impede the epiphyseal plates in the bones from fusing to the joints at the proper time, leaving a castrato with elongated limbs that often evoke satirical comparisons to gorillas. This irregular bone growth often resulted in severe osteoporosis as the castrato got older. For other castrati, the perceivable impact of the operation was much less severe. They looked normal more or less, but maybe weren't able to grow facial hair. In terms of a castrati's ability to perform sexually, the operation had a similar range of consequences. Some were completely unable to perform, but others could and developed reputations for being quite good in bed. In fact, the bed was one of the few places where a castrato's shortcomings could be advantageous. Many times, a castrato's lover was a married woman from polite society who wanted to get a little something going on the side without her husband finding out. In the days before contraception, the biggest risk of having an affair was the potential to be impregnated. With a castrato, you don't have to worry about that. But not having the risk of pregnancy in no way meant there was no risk in getting caught. In fact, on one occasion in London, a married woman's letter to her castrato lover named Tenducci was intercepted, and the husband found out about the relationship. The media got wind of the scandal, and the very same newspapers that praised the castrato's singing sensationalized the extramarital affair. The media heaped so much attention on the scandal that Tenducci had to skip town and hide out in Italy, where he stayed until things cooled off. At the same time, scores of female fans were throwing themselves at Castrati. When they reached the height of their fame, Europe finally began to seriously question whether castrating boys for singing was moral. By the second half of the 18th century, there's a very strong moral critique of the practice of castration. So while there's still quite a number who are being castrated and who are singing on stages and in churches, there's also simultaneously this vigorous theological and sort of sociological debate that's going on about whether this should be tolerated by society. And you can imagine that in the second half of the 18th century, when the whole Enlightenment discourse was beginning, which is part of the discourse of the American Revolution, that was simultaneously taking place in Europe, that was not going to be very tolerant of the practice of castration, which is associated with the old regime, the old world, with this sort of uh, depravity and moral corruption of the old world. While they were discussing the morality of castration, Enlightenment thinkers were also discussing for the first time the importance of childhood. There was really no notion of childhood as a separate stage or there being an innocence of childhood that should be protected before, say, Rousseau in the mid-18th century so there started to be this notion of the child as creature that should have a very carefully modulated education and protections from adulthood. Many notions that we associate with the nuclear family developed in the mid-18th century. 
So these are sort of coincident with the critique of castration, which didn't stop completely, but waned radically by the early 19th century. Over the course of the 19th century, the Roman Catholic Church began to wind down the use of castrati in its choirs. Finally, in 1903, the Pope officially banned the singers, declaring that whenever it is desirable to employ the high voices of sopranos and contraltos, these parts must be taken by boys. It seems women were still not yet considered for the choirs. The remaining castrati were given their pensions and retired. The Church wasn't the only organization sunsetting the high-pitched singers. In 1861, Italy became a unified nation, and the new government passed a law making castration for musical purposes officially illegal. Without the creation of new castrati, the singers became an endangered species. Finally, in 1922, the last castrato, named Alessandro Moreschi, passed away, leaving the world, for the first time in centuries, without a single castrato to sing for it. Fortunately, Alessandro Moreschi's life overlapped with the invention of recording technology, and his voice was captured in a series of recording sessions in Rome between 1902 and 1904. These are the only recordings of a castrato that were ever made, and the only documentation we have of the voice that was often compared to the divine. Charlie Harding, one of the two hosts of Switched on Pop, listened to one of the Alessandro Moreschi recordings for the first time for the Switched on Pop episode I spoke about earlier. I recently called Charlie and asked him if the mystique surrounding Castrati created an expectation for what Alessandro Moreschi's voice would sound like. I think I had all of these gut reactions right away to what a Castrati should sound like. I don't know if I even heard it exactly in my head. At the time, I sort of thought of it as like this unicorn sound that would be almost inhuman. Almost like when you hear Daft Punk singing, right? It's always through a vocoder. I was expecting something as totally distinct and totally original as something like that. Here is Alessandro Moreschi performing Ave Maria. Does this recording of the last castrato live up to the hype? I was totally dumbfounded. I guess for two reasons. One was I simply couldn't believe that there was a castrati alive during any point of recorded music. So that someone actually captured someone who had lived that life, that astounded me. And I was also surprised that the quality of the voice in some ways wasn't that different from some of my favorite alto tenors, you know, very high male singers. So 
I didn't get that unicorn quality in some ways. It seems that many people agree with Charlie Harding, and there is a general consensus among scholars that Alessandro Moreschi's recordings do not meet expectations. But this doesn't mean that the sound of a castrato's voice is overhyped. It means that the recording may not be an accurate representation of what a castrato, in their peak voice, sounded like. Martha Feldman has her criticisms of this recording as well. I think it's uneven. I don't think he was singing as well as he was when he was younger, but he wasn't old, as people sometimes think. He was 43 at the first session and 45 at the second session. But sometimes the castrato's voice had suffered by then. I think it was also a very disorienting experience for him and and all singers of his time to make recordings. For a lot of reasons, the technical conditions were difficult. He was singing into a giant horn. And so these were flat record recordings, flat disc. You know, the conditions were such that you couldn't really make dynamics. You had someone who would sort of gently push you forward and backward so that you didn't oversing the capabilities of the horn and cutting stylus technology. And they were completely unused to it. If the Alessandro Moreschi recordings are poor examples of what a castrato sounded like, unfortunately, there is not much else we can point to that sounds similar. There are medical conditions, dysfunctions of the endocrine system that stop a boy's voice from changing, but those are rare, and even if one such case perfectly mimicked castration, the boy would still need to undergo all of the extensive training a castrato received. So, there is a strong possibility that the world will never know what a castrato in top voice sounded like. In the wake of their extinction, the niche castrati filled in both music as high-pitched male singers and in society by occupying this nebulous space between the two genders. Has it been left empty since Alessandro Moreschi passed away? Or has our culture found other ways of filling the void? Well, there's certainly a great value put on falsetto singing among pop stars, which, you know, gets reworked oftentimes in a kind of androgynous guise, you know, where we have these pop singers like Prince and David Bowie and so on, who have this whole androgynous thing going on where their sexuality and their gender is not very stable. So maybe that is something that is related to the phenomenon in some way. That's it for this episode of Between the Liner Notes. If you would like to hear another great podcast about music, I recommend you try Switched on Pop. You've heard from them a little in this show, but in every Switched on Pop episode, the two hosts, Charlie Harding and Nate Sloan, dissect a current pop song or trend and show why pop music that appears to be simple is actually quite complex. I recommend starting with episode 19, which covers why saxophones have had a resurgence in pop music. Big thanks to Martha Feldman for being my guest. If you would like to know more about Castrati, her book, The Castrato, Reflections on Natures and Kinds, is available online. A paperback version will be coming out this summer. Also thanks to Switched On Pop for letting me use a clip of their show, and thanks to Charlie Harding for chatting with me about Castrati. This show was produced by me, Matthew Billy. Jason Silverman helped edit the show and created the graphics and website. Laura Vandiver assisted with production. All of the music credits can be found in this episode's show notes on our website. Between the Liner Notes is a member of the Goat Rodeo Network, who, I might add, just released an amazing new podcast called Your Story Here. 
You can check it out at GoatRodeoDC.com. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. You can also find us at our website, BetweenTheLinerNotes.com. Feel free to contact us. We'd love to hear from you. As always, thanks for listening. We'll talk some more on the next Between the Liner Notes.